here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we have two authors joining us to discuss their work and we're going to be beginning with Lane. Lane, welcome to the show. Hi. Okay, so what we're going to ask you to do is to kick us off by reading us your query letter. Great, thank you. Here we go. Dear Cece, Bianca and Carly, I'm a big fan of the podcast and each of you, so thank you for the opportunity to learn from you all. Cece, I submitted this to you because your manuscript wish list is full of topics I love to write about and and because once upon a time, I queried you with an ancient version of this project. 
subjects, but let's not talk about that. Democracy of Girls is a 95K multi-POV upmarket novel that showcases the very best of female friendships, how our differences can bring us closer, and how sometimes the unlikeliest of friendships are meant to save us. Democracy of Girls marries the themes and found families in Beartown by Frederick Bachman with the all-female cast and camp vibes of the lightness by Emily Temple. Content note, sexual assault. Given the school's focus on social justice and community development, Uni International is used to making history, but the 2009 class is one for the book. For the first time in the program's existence, all 10 students are women. Cat's arthritis destroyed her dreams of being a soccer star, and now she's checking off two items on her bucket list, education and travel. May needs to finish something she starts and to escape the guilt she feels from her involvement in her best friend's death. Completing the two-year program is Hannah's ticket to making her perfect mama proud, and Sabine wants to absolve a questionable relationship in her past by saving the whole world. The group is scheduled to spend two years living in Panama, Greece, South Africa, and India, but traveling the world with new friends isn't a technicolor dream. For starters, the 10 young women have little in common except an abhorrence for instant coffee. Before the end of their time in Panama, a leader and student quit, spiraling the trip into chaos. When two of the girls are assaulted and school money goes missing, it could end their trip, leave them stranded, and destroy everything they're each working so hard towards. But to finish the journey, they each have to confront their past. Together, they must find a way forward. I studied photojournalism and writing at Western Kentucky University. Democracy of Girls is my third novel and is inspired by a similar program I did in my 20s. My team of 12 girls lived in 12 countries over the course of two years. I co-wrote Remember Us, which came out in 2019, and until recently, I was represented by Redacted at Redacted. We started the submission process on my second book before we amicably parted ways, and I'm happy to answer any questions you have about this. I've included the first five pages of my manuscript below. Thank you in advance for your time and any insights you share about my work. Sincerely, Lane. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lane. Awesome job. Cece, would you like to tell us your take on that query letter? This is a really strong query letter. It's very well written, very well structured. I like that you gave us title, word count, genre. I love the comps. I'm a huge Frederick Bachman fan. Like huge. Beartown is... I actually think Beartown is the best. Everybody else prefers a man called Ave, like Beartown. Question. This is such a small note, but it did occur to me. The school's name sounds very generic, like Uni International. Wouldn't there be a more specific name? Or maybe that's intentional. Writing query letters for multi-PO novels is really difficult, right? And your first paragraph, you established all sorts of characters, all sorts of motivations and backgrounds, and you did a really, really good job. When it comes to the second paragraph, I'm starting to think, okay, so I kind of get the setup. I get the foundation. I need you to give me not just the inciting incident, but also what's at stake. And I don't know how to say this without sounding like I'm nitpicking, but what is at stake in an original, compelling, specific way? Because we get that it could end their trip. We get that it could leave them stranded and destroy everything that they're working for so hard. But it feels like finish the journey, and those are your words, is, is the goal. And I don't, like, I want the goal to be a bit more specific. I want there to be a clear antagonistic force that I'm scared of and that I'm rooting against. I want to understand the stakes and to use bear town as a calm i don't know if you remember but that book opens up with a line it says something like you know one evening a teenager walked into the woods pulled up a double-barreled shotgun put it against another teenager's maybe didn't say teenager's head and and pulled the trigger and this is the story of how we got there so i understand that there's a very 
specific thing. And then there's a whole hockey buildup. So I guess for me, I don't know enough about the story based on the second paragraph to suggest ways to change it. But I'm just wondering if we can get into specificity. Just because confront the past and finish the journey, it just seems a little generic, if that makes sense. In fairness, this is because I'm talking to you and our job is to offer notes. Because I definitely would have like scrolled down and kept on reading this for this because it's the kind of story that I love. It has found families. It has the wonderful comps. It has all these women. And I love the fact that like, oh, for the first year, they're all women in the graduating class. And, and that's just exciting. So I also love the author paragraph. So good job there. Any any questions about this feedback? Just before we go to questions from Lane, Carly, was there anything you wanted to add there so that Lane can ask all of her questions at once? The one thing I wanted to add, which I talk about with multi-POV queries a lot, is that it's so hard. And I empathize because you're trying to tell this backstory of like all these people and why all these POVs matter. But the most important thing about a multi-POV pitch is what brings them together. Are they hiding a secret for the school? Or you know what I mean? Like, what is that uniting factor? Because right now, to me, it feels like we have these separate people. And I really want the hook to be about what is it that brings them together? Because it brings us closer together is kind of a vague hook. You know, you say how our differences can bring us closer. To me, that's just not the hook, right? To me, it's like, what exactly about the differences? Is there a secret? Is there a surprise? Is there a twist? And if there's not, that is okay. But it's just making it a little bit more complicated to sell this book, right? Because our job is how do we sell this book? And we want to know what about these characters is special and united in this hook, even if it's multi-POV. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Lane, is the information that you can give Carly and Cece that perhaps could help them find that antagonist or the hook? Or do you have questions for them that maybe will help you clarify it for yourself? First of all, thank you so much. That's so helpful already. I'm taking some notes. I guess for Carly, you said what brings them together. So is it not enough that they all signed up for the same program? So even though they're different people with different reasons for joining? So that's the premise, right? The premise is that they're brought together through this program. The hook to me is more about what happens to them now that you brought them together, right? Because you're the puppet master here. You've puppeteered them all together. They're in this moment. But now we need our what happens next moment. And to me, the hook is different than the premise. So for me, the hook is what is this catastrophic event that, you know, that's going to ricochet through the climax and through all of these characters' lives, right? That's what I want to know. Also, something to keep in mind there, Lane, is you've got the scenario that's bringing these different people together. But why have you chosen the characters that you chose to be brought together? Because the scenario could have said the same, but you could have written totally different characters being brought together. So what was it about those specific characters that you wanted to explore when their worlds came together? Why did you make those characters the way you did? That sometimes helps answer that question. Right. Okay, that's all very helpful. I don't think I have a question based on what y'all have said. I think I just have some research to do, some homework, some thinking, maybe some rewriting. I'm not sure. <laughs> but that was that's very helpful. Raising mistakes, adding some specificity, that's going to help me a lot. Thank you. In terms of the antagonists, Cece, what, do you have any ideas there? So what I was going to say is, The impression I got, which might be totally incorrect, is that it's already in your story and you're just being vague about it in the query letter because you do say that the two girls get assaulted and the money goes missing. So if they are accused of stealing the money and they have to band together to prove their innocence, that is a situation that would deliver the hook that we're talking about. Whenever I give ideas, I sometimes feel like authors are going, oh, but that's not my story. And I go, that's totally fine. I'm just illustrating an example of what that looks like. So you can figure out what your story does offer, right? The ingredients, the little hints are there. 
the assault, the money, banding together, finish the journey. It's just more about making it clear that there are actual stakes because, not to sound insensitive, but the assault thing, there's no solution to that because it's our horrible world and it's therapy and it's very internal. But the money going missing, unless they're accused of something, they don't own the university. They can go back home. They're young women who go back home and just be, okay, that didn't work out. I'll go to a different college. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it feels like they're going to be back to where they started. And that's never good. You don't want the whole, well, if everything goes wrong, we're back to where we started. You want it to be like this mess of a thing happened when we're painted into a corner and we have to claw our way out. Whether that's quiet or super high stakes, it doesn't matter because it could be the literary novel. It could be like a more dramatic novel full of plot twists. But it is about showing that they are feeling the pressure cooker situation. And I don't know if this is helpful at all. So apologies if it's not. So that was helpful. So for example, one of the girls is accused of stealing the money. So they come in, they're not friends because they're very different people. They finally form this tentative friendship, decide, okay, we're in this, we love each other. And then one of them is accused of stealing the money. So then they have to decide, are we going to go forward with this person? Or they are basically given an ultimatum from the leadership of school saying this person has to leave. So you can either join another class that we have going on, or I will be your leader, this representative from the school that's come in. So maybe trying to work that into the theory would help? I do think so, especially if there's infighting and different points of view about whether she did it or not. Like, does one person think she actually stole the money? Does another person think she didn't? You shouldn't ever write a group where everyone thinks the same thing, because otherwise, what's the point? Why do we have four characters, you know? It's really important to highlight how everyone has different theories about what's going on and wants different outcomes, because then you put them all together and it's like drama, and drama is fun. Especially with money, right? There's the power play. There's everybody's different relationship to money. Some girls might have a lot. Some might have more than others. Some might be on scholarship, right? And so that money piece, I think that's really interesting. I would definitely connect with that in the query for sure. And group dynamics always allow for a lot of conflict. And that's what you want in stories. Lots of conflict. Because lots of external conflict leads to lots of internal conflict. And you see the both coming out. Lane? I was just laughing because Bianca and I already talked about how we need more conflict. <laughs> And she's been coaching me through trying to, to maximize conflict in my story. So thanks, Bianca. <laughs> yeah, the, the conflict stuff can be tricky. And I find that, you know, we tend to either just focus on internal conflict or external conflict. And finding that balance is always difficult. I struggle with that as well. Okay, Lane, so if you don't have any further questions on that, will you give us a summary of what's in those opening pages? Yes, I would love to. So we start with Kat. Kat is from Canada. I live in Canada. We see her in front of her house. She's with her mom. Her mom is scowling. Her mom says, remember what I told you, what happens if you get on that plane? So we see Kat kind of wavering. Am I going to go? Am I going to say what's going to happen? Kat gets on the plane and she lands in Panama and she can't find her group. So she's looking around, panicking a little bit. She finds her group. A guy and a girl gets in the truck with them, drives through the countryside of Panama. And we learn and kind of through some internal thought process that Kat wanted to be a soccer star and that she was recently diagnosed with arthritis. So her body is breaking down. She's already in a lot of pain, already on medication. And her doctor's predicting that in 10 years, she won't be able to do many physical things. She's a very active physical person. So she's trying to check off her bucket list in the next 10 years. And that's where we end the five pages. Wonderful. Thank you. Cece, what was your take on them? Okay. So I always like it when we have the author here because your summary of what happened tells me not only what I read, but what you want the reader 
to take away. You mentioned she was wavering, right? I didn't get that at all. I didn't believe that she was, I knew for a fact that she was going to get into that car and not just because I read the query letter. I think that if that is your intention, and I think that's a good intention to have, I would up the indecision factor. Does she actually consider staying? And if so, one of the ways to do that is to really lean into specificity when she's picturing staying. So this is page three, because we have the query letter first. It's the paragraph that starts with Kat can see her future if she doesn't get on them today. Community college with her best friend, falling in love with one of the local Mormons. Weekly dinners here with fam. I say this with love, very generic. Not poorly written at all, well written, but generic. You know, falling in love with one of the local farm boys. It could be anyone. So if you lean into specificity, you're painting a picture. And when you paint a picture, I go, oh, maybe she does want that world. Maybe she will stay because I didn't get the wavering at all. And I think I should get the wavering. I like that idea. Okay, starting over now with the notes that I was going to tell you. Really, really like that right in the beginning wrote, this is the second paragraph, that despite everything, Kat feels a surge of gratitude as a woman. This woman is her mom. That was powerful. That was subtle. That intrigued. Second page. The morning swirls into a slow motion buzz. In front of her, her mom, home, family. Behind her, the whole world. Between the two, what the doctor said. That was great. The between the two, what the doctor said. It's a clue. It's intriguing. It plants a seed of curiosity. What did the doctor say? What doctor did he say it to her? Why am I assuming the doctor's a man? Did she say it to Kat? Did she say it to her mom? Is it about her mom? Is her mom sick? Is she sick? I have no idea. And that is wonderful because my head is churning with the possibilities that that is what I want. But very quick note, wouldn't it be the opposite? Like she's talking to her mom. She turns to see that her best friend pull up. In front of her is the best friend and then behind her is her mom, right? I think it's the opposite. I don't know. Maybe I read that wrong. It's a very minor note. It doesn't actually matter. So I love that you placed a seed of curiosity there. Please do that more. You also did it with a despite everything, she feels a surge of gratitude. And then my note for you is that you removed the curiosity because you told me everything about her diagnosis. I don't think you should do that. I think you should save that for later. That's something she should confess to her friends when she's friends with them. It should come later. It should not come in the first chapter. It's too much establishing, too much explaining. And it kind of poured water on the fire of the curiosity. And I was like, okay, well, now I know why she's so eager to get this journey started. I don't think that that should go there. That's that's my big picture note for you. In terms of character development, I also thought that in the very first page, when you write desperation, Lisa's cat's words, which come out raspy and bent, does she mind that she sounds desperate? Is she self-conscious about it? Is she comfortable with her vulnerability? I wanted to know. Also, I wouldn't say cat turns to see that her best friend has pulled up. It sounds artificial. Amy pulled up. And then later on in the pages, you say her best friend, Amy, and we know who Amy is. You've already named her. So trust that we will remember because we will. The dialogue with Amy could have been a little bit less info dumpy. Like it was, come on, you know, traffic to Calgary is always bad and you can't be late for your flight. Like I don't, I, I thought that that was, I thought that that sounded a little artificial. Who is this little boy near her that she kneels and hugs? Her brother? Yeah, it was one of the two foster brothers that was running around. Just very strange to call him little boy. He's her brother. I think name him. Yeah. Like she hugs and, okay. and kneels. I don't know. It just, it sounded odd, but maybe okay. I, I have, I'm weird with this thing. Maybe, maybe it was just from my ear. I was confused about why, again, at the risk of sounding insensitive, she's not going to war. She's going to another country to study. She has the means to do it. She's getting on a plane. Someone's going to be waiting for her. This is not, like she kept saying home or adventure, adventure or home. Why can't I have both? And I'm like, feels like a normal thing to understand that you can't have both. You know, I've been there actually around 2009 myself. So I think that that's when 
you plant another seed of curiosity, you know? She resented the fact that she had a, a ticking time bomb inside of her, or I don't know, something else, something else to make me go, oh, it's not just a regular person going, because it's not. Kat is not a regular young woman going to college. She has been given a diagnosis that changes this. Just on that, Cece, I think even more than that, it's not that, you know, she can't go to college and stay home. It's that this foster mom is giving her an ultimatum, which kids should never be given. You shouldn't be told, you know, remember what I said if you leave. I mean, most kids go to college understanding that they can then come home afterwards if they want to or if they need to. So perhaps that's something that Lane can lean into there, that the foster mom is saying you have to pick one or the other. And if you pick this adventure, then forget about home kind of thing, because that is something hugely unfair to put on a kid that age. I like the idea of leaning into the familial, because anything that's family is very, especially for me, like it's catnip for me. I guess, does she think it's unfair? Like, does she have that sense of self that it's unfair? Because if it's been her whole life, she doesn't have that. So I don't know. It's, it's definitely something to explore in a way that's in keeping with her character. I also wondered when she arrived in Panama, is it intentional that she's referring to it as an entire country and not a city she arrived at a city right like imagine me arriving in canada in toronto versus calgary versus i don't know Yellowknife, and just calling it canada and she does it twice so i would i would just name the city and i assume it's panama city but i have here and then so i'm suggesting that you remove the revelation of her chronic illness or or i don't know if that's how, actually how you would say it but if you do decide to keep it i would really lean into more specificity when it comes to her dreams the dreams that she has just discovered that she will never have. I'm looking at page, where am I? Page five, very last page. Just like that cat, full of dreams and a million ambitions, knew that she would have to fast forward her carefully curated life plan. And then we get these visuals, these sharp details on, on what that life is. And I wanted more specificity. I wanted her to not feel like every girl. I wanted her to feel like cat. So I don't think that should go there. But if you decide to keep it, that's that's what I think you should elevate the language with as much specificity as possible. Those are my notes. I think there that you can keep the reader intrigued for quite a few chapters as you explain her struggles with this chronic illness, her frustrations with how it limits her and how it's kind of holding her back. Because this is part of her stakes, right? Like she wouldn't have gone off on this big adventure if she didn't feel this ticking clock in terms of pretty soon she won't be able to do these things. Because if she didn't have this, she could go, okay, well, I'll stay home and then one day I'll leave and do these things. So for her, you know, this is a huge part of why she's leaving and why she's doing what she's doing. So, you know, I think you can definitely incorporate that. And is there a way, Lane, that something she wanted to do with her life is something very specifically that she cannot do with the chronic arthritis so that we feel that devastation even more? So if you think about certain occupations, you know, like concert pianist or a violinist or surgeon, like you think of certain things that absolutely those dreams are completely dead out the water, no matter how much you've worked your whole life towards them when you get this diagnosis. So I think if, you know, she was pinning her future hopes on this thing that now after working towards it, she cannot have because of her illness, that makes us connect with her even more and ups the stakes there. What are you thinking, Cece? That's there though with soccer. It's more the fact that to me, I would have rather found out about the illness later and have her fear and her anxiety on the page with regards to what's happening. So again, I, I am not cat, but if I were, I'm arriving in Panama City or wherever she arrives inside Panama. And I'm looking around and I'm going, I can't tell them. They can't know. These women I'm meeting, they can't see me as the sick person, you know? So I'm anxious and I'm mindful of everything I'm doing, of every facial expression, of every movement. I want to show them that I'm strong and I can pick up the suitcase. I don't 
don't want to ask for help. And I would rather get that fear and that anxiety to keep me curious about why is she nervous about her identity? And then I will keep on reading to find out. I think that revealing it is a mistake because, and I hate to say this because I don't like what it says about us as humans, illness is a little boring. You know, like as as a page turning concept, it's a little boring. It's very much you against yourself, you against your own body. And that's as a story. I don't think it's enough to be turning the pages, but maybe it's because my brain is messed up. That is also possible. I'm trying to think of that Nicola Ewan book, the YA book that came out about the girl who was kept at home by her mother who said that she was dying. And that whole book you keep reading to find out exactly what the illness is, etc, etc. So, you know, it, it can be used in, in a very intriguing way. Carly, have you got anything to add before we wrap up? The last thing I just wanted to touch on was the whole upmarket positioning of this book. And so Year Comps with Beartown, that is obviously like an adult book club book, Lane. And so I'm just trying to figure out, CC, did you see this as an adult book? Lane, you see this as an adult book, even though it's all teen characters? Or, or where are we at with that? Sure. Yeah, I'm actually glad you said that, Carly, because that was a question I had for y'all. The youngest character, she's 18. And then the other POVs, one is 21 and two are 24. And I am in a book club, so I feel like this is the type of book my book club reads. That, that was actually a question I had for y'all. It's not just how old your characters are. It's a feel. I didn't get a feeling that this was necessarily adult, but I also, I think that you're towing the line right now. Carly, you're the positioning queen. What did you think? Well, so because we start with the young, so you're saying this is youngest character. She's 18, right? And so whenever we start with the voice, so imagine an agent only reads five pages. Imagine an editor only reads five pages. Like I'm reading the youngest character and I think this is young. So this leads me to the question, is this the right person to start the novel? Because if you really want this to be a comp to bear town, which has everything from, you know, children to adult, right, that we go between all these POVs. I'm not convinced this is upmarket book club fiction based on what I've read. That said, I haven't read the whole thing, right? But if agents only read five pages, editors only read five pages, this leaves a lot of questions for me. So I would potentially start with an older voice if you want to make sure that this is read as upmarket. Is that something you're able to do, Lane, in terms of switching around the POVs or is that going to be difficult? Yeah, I can't do it. I'm just kidding. I can change it. <laughs> I've had a different, um, I think I've had 10 different opening chapters, so I can probably rechange it another time. Yeah, I would play around Wonderful. with that to make sure you're getting the desired tone and voice effect. Great. Thank you. Do you do you have other questions, Lane, before we move on to Peter? No, this has given me so much to think about. Here are all my notes. Hopefully I can decipher them later. I'll listen to the episode a few times. Cringe when I hear my own voice, but I very much appreciate your time. Thank you so, so much. What I love about working with Lane, so Lane won the manuscript evaluation that I did when I was raising funds for Coletta Mapai. And so I've just seen a few, you know, opening chapters of Lane's work. But what I love about Lane, and this is something for all emerging writers, is how incredibly open she is to feedback. You give Lane feedback and she's immediately, the brain's churning in terms of how to incorporate that, which is absolutely wonderful because I think as writers, what we do is we get stuck in the way we originally saw it and then we struggle to pivot from there. So Lane, definitely something for you to think about and something for us to speak about as well as we go forward. Right, that was it from Lane. And now we're joined by Peter who submitted his query to Carly for consideration. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Could you read us your query letter? 
I would love to. Dear Miss Waters, I am seeking representation for my thriller, The Woman from Death Row, complete at 70,000 words, which will appeal to readers of Greg Hurwitz's The Nowhere Man and Barry Eisler's Livia Alone. As listed below in the bio paragraph, I am the author of four traditionally published books, and I think it is time for me to partner with a literary agent to advance my career. I have been agented before, name redacted, an experience which taught me an important lesson. It is one thing to obtain literary representation, and quite another to obtain the right literary representation. Since obtaining the right literary representation begins with the right query letter, I am hopeful that you will help me with mine. And thanks for taking the time to do the podcast. The shit no one tells you about writing is not only informative, but also entertaining and funny. Of note, I did query Miss Waters at P.S. Literary Agency under separate cover. Despite being brilliant and beautiful, Jade Collins' life hasn't turned out well. She grew up in the closet of her mother's changing room at a strip club in urban Los Angeles, ending up in Central Juvenile Hall after she murders the man who supplied the drugs with which her mother overdosed. Jade thinks things are turning around for her after she makes out of Central and into UCLA and completes medical school and residency training, but they aren't. She winds up on death row after killing the man who has been abusing one of her patients. Enter defrock cardiologist Mark Brain, man who has just found out that the covert intel group for which he works is no longer operating within bounds of CIA. Under orders from Wade Wiseman, chief of Brand's unit, Mark fakes Jade's execution to use her as a pawn in a scheme to murder his Mexican drug lord, but the ruse goes badly, and Jane ends up in a coma. She wakes up a few days later, pretending a dense amnesia which catalyzes Wiseman into shutting down the whole project. Wiseman sends one of Mark's own teammates to kill both Jade and Mark, who have become a major liability to his operation. They manage to escape the assassin and go on the run, but Wiseman is always close behind, and he seems to be able to predict Mark's every move. Mark's only hope is to find out who Wiseman is working for and kill them both. But Wiseman's puppet master sits high in the halls of covert power, making the task formidable. Jade wants nothing to do with either Mark or the situation, but with no money, no place to go, and no identity, she's forced to play a dangerous game of deceit, false affection, and violence, a game for which her previous life has trained her well. Peter Hogenkamp is a practicing physician, public speaker, and author of medical fiction and thrillers, living in Rutland, Vermont. Peter's writing credits include The Intern, The Vatican Conspiracy, The Vatican Secret, and Conspiracioni Vaticano. It can be found on his author website, PeterHogenkampBooks.com, as well as his personal blog, Peter Hogenkamp Writes, where he writes about most anything. Peter is the creator, producer, and host of Your Health Matters, a health information program, which airs on cable television, streams on YouTube, and sounds off on podcasts. Peter was a finalist for the prestigious 2019 Killer Nashville Claymore Award, as well as the 2020 Vermont Writers Prize. Peter is a proud member of the International Thrill Writers and the Crime Writers Association. He tweets against the wishes of his wife, four children, and spicy Karen Terrier Hermione to 10,000 followers at the Hogan Camp BT. He can be reached on his Facebook page or at peterhogancampbooks at gmail.com. Right. Wonderful, Peter. Thank you. Carly, will you give us your take on that query letter? Thank you so much for being here, Peter, and making time in your busy schedule to join us. It sounds like you're very busy writing, practicing physician, and it seems like you've woven that all into this book. So I'm really glad that you're here. Okay. So just start starting off with query letter stuff. I always like the title to be capitalized. So the woman from death row, I would just love that to stand out more. So just like an all caps, just kind of across the top would make that pop okay. a little bit more. And then in terms of the whole opening, there's that whole dance of like, I've been represented before and I want people to know that. And I'm trying to figure out the best way to communicate that. I thought you did a really good balance there of letting us know that you've been published. I don't know if you need to name the agent maybe at that stage, because a lot of this is further conversations you'll have with a potential agent. So, and I can always look everything up on Publishers Marketplace. So, so you might just want to say like, I've been represented before, parted ways amicably, you know, author of some books. So I can, you can take out a little bit of that. I think you strike a pretty good balance, but you might just want to take a little bit out from that section. I well, because, um, you know, I, I was with for a long time and we're still good friends. It's just, yeah. she just wasn't the right person for me. But I think it sets you into a different, you know, kind of category of, of writer when you've been an agent before. And so I wanted them to know that, but I, I also don't want to be obnoxious of it. 
Yeah, it's a totally fine balance. So when you say, again, I'm the author of four traditionally published books, right away, I'm going to kind of log into Publishers Marketplace, kind of, you know, go to your website, do a little bit of research. But I agree, it does set you into a a next kind of level of this is a professional, they know how to write some books, right? They're not a newbie in terms of the publishing process. So I think you do a pretty good job. You may just want to take a little bit out from that section, just so it's not so dense off the top, that's all. Or you can move some of that down to the the bottom. And yeah, I think your flow of writing, your tone really comes across really nicely there. You know, the sense of obtaining the right literary agent representation begins with the right query letter like it's a nice cadence you know i'm getting to know your voice and your style so i really did like that and so now we get into our middle paragraph our body paragraph so i really see the comps here i think you picked really great comps because i really felt like that's really coming through the only thing i would maybe mention here a couple things so you have a lot of names like a lot of first names or full names you have you know jade and mark brand and then we have wiseman right and all these people and sometimes that's just it comes off number one a little bit Synopsis-y. And it's just a little bit, again, too dense for a query letter because really what we're trying to get is, you know, the hook, what's happening, you know, what's exciting about this. And when we weigh it down with names, sometimes it's just, it can even just be, you can call him by his job title or something like that, just to not make our eyes glaze over a little bit with that many names. My next note is POV. So I don't recall anywhere us talking about how many POVs this is. Is it multi POV? It sounds like it is multi POV. Would that be right? It it's interesting okay. because I've listened to all the podcasts and prior to that, I never even knew I should write down what the POV was in a query letter. And so since that time, I've, you know, I realized I should. This is an interesting because the, the book starts with this third person limited with Jade, but it's the only paragraph it's third person. And the rest of the book is dual POV be- between first person Jade and first person Mark. Yes, I think we definitely should include that. I kind of get the idea because we start in Jade's point of view and then we're kind of, I can tell by the way that you flowed through the wording yeah. that it is, but I would love it spelled out. And I also, as a whole, it comes off a bit synopsis-y. So I would try to just focus on a little bit less of the minutia of like, we go from here to there, right? Or, or we're running from here to there and just focus on what's right. at stake for all the characters. Because you have really high stakes. I mean, I think one of the things that I really love about this query is that like a woman with nothing to lose is an incredible character right like there's not a lot of female characters out there like that and i think that's one of the reasons why girl with a dragon tattoo was so popular a woman with nothing to lose is so powerful and i and i really like that about jade i wanted to use the woman with the dragon tattoo as one of my other comps because number one it's i love that character so much and number two is they're some of my favorite books but i was wondering if it was too old yes it is so you did the right thing with the comps that you have so rest assured for sure They're too old at this point. I don't even know how old they are. They might be over a decade. And they're also kind of a brand of their own because they're movies and things like that. So your words did that for you. You know what I mean? Like you didn't have to tell me girl with a dragon tattoo and I got that. So I think you can just rest assured in the power of your words that you did the job there. But I do think your comps are great. You you have New York Times bestsellers, right? I think you're in a good space. Yeah. So those are kind of my main notes. Yeah. I think it's just dial down the kind of synopsis language, tell us the POVs and, and that's really it. Cece, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? My focus is typically the plot paragraph, and I don't know how attached you are to your names, but Jade, Mark, Wade, they're all four-letter short names. Mm. I got confused as I was reading it. I had to go back. Is Wade... Okay, so that's not the same. And because if all I read was one query letter a day, this would problem, but because we do it so at a time, I would definitely compress, like Carly said, but also maybe even reconsider the the similarities of these names. Or maybe you could just call some of them by their last names. Wonderful. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Peter, what questions do you have? You guys actually answered them. Wonderful. Okay, so Peter, will you give our listeners an indication of what was in those opening pages? Sure. So the book starts 
actually quite quite a bit before present day. Jade's now 14 years old at the start of this book, and she's just come home from her theater practice, and she's discovered that her mother has overdosed in the small apartment that they live, which is really just the, the uh, changing room of her mother's strip club. And this is a kind of a, an outcome that Jade's been really expecting her whole life because her mother's been an Oxycontin addict for her whole life. And so Jade has always made a contingency plan for that. And her contingency plan was she's going to take her mom's the $300 her mom has stashed in the tiles above her ceiling, and she's going to take a bus to uh, Utah, where her mom came from, and hopefully try to uh, hook up with her grandparents, who she's never met, and hopefully they can kind of raise her. But before she goes, she wants to kill the drug dealer that kind of supplied the drugs to her mother. And it's not that she kind of hates him for any reason, or that she's got some kind of vendetta on him. She just doesn't want this same situation to happen to any other person. And so her thinking is that if I kill this drug dealer, then you know he won't be supplying any other families with drugs, and some other girl could grow up in a normal situation instead of this one. And the thing that doesn't happen is, is just as critical. She sits down with her mother, and she kind of hopes to cry, and she doesn't cry. And that's because you know her mother and, and she have just kind of coexisted in this space for 14 years. Her mom's not really been able to function as a mother, so she doesn't really have any kind of bond to her mother. And though she wants to have a bond to her mother, she doesn't. So she, uh, the first thing uh, after she sits there for a while, she goes and she eats some leftover Chinese food, and then she goes across to the uh, pawn shop across the way, and she knows they have they carry a gun there because one of the guys that works at the pawn shop is a frequent frequent guest at the strip club, and he always brags about keeping a piece there. So she goes over, gets the piece, and uh, texts the uh, drug dealer, say, "Hey, or I need more drugs. You know, you know, I'm pretending to be her mother." And she's sitting there as this these five pages end, waiting for this drug dealer to show up with this gun stuffed into the waistband of the jeans. Wonderful. Thank you. Right, Carly, what was your take on those opening pages? So there was two reasons I wanted to have you on the show. Number one, I love the opening line. I thought it was great. So the line is, Jade's mother was beautiful, even in death. I thought that was a beautiful line. And the second reason I really wanted to have you on the show so we could have a dialogue is about this detachment that Jade is showing or exhibiting through the words. Because when you just explained it to me, you said she wanted to sit down and feel something about her mother's death. But I really didn't get on the page that feeling necessarily. And there's such a detachment. And obviously, she's been through trauma, right? This is a clearly a trauma-filled childhood, right? So that detachment makes sense. But on a line level, I just wasn't seeing that detachment exist in the words. So I think what, as I said, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show was that I kind of wanted to figure out this emotionlessness and has she seen a lot of dead bodies? Like, why isn't she feeling grossed out or want to run away or like call the authorities, right? There's such a passiveness to just pulling up beside your mom's dead body and cracking a leftover beer and, and eating the food, right? There was such a, I don't know, as I said, like a, a sadness, a passiveness. And I just love you to tell me about that. So I actually have a patient who has a very, very similar background to this. And the patient actually has trouble experiencing emotion. And what I was trying, what I was trying to get without telling it, but just, just showing it was her kind of lack of emotion because it isn't there. So you kind of see the lack of emotion by what she isn't experiencing. So I was trying to kind of be, maybe I was trying to be too literary. Yeah, I think it just comes off a little bit subtle and I, I like it and I get it, right? Trauma does that to people, absolutely. But I think maybe just because this is a commercial novel and clearly you have a very elevated sense of voice where I think you hit that right. that nice sweet spot where I think this is very compelling. I just dial down, yeah, the literary a little bit here, dial up the commercial a little bit. And I think that's probably what you're going to bounce throughout your whole book, right? Is right. when you want to be literary. And when you want to be commercial. Yeah, I don't know. And I have faith in you, you know, being a published writer that you know how to do this. So I would just say, yeah, just dial that up a little bit there. It's interesting you said that because I did send this book to my editor at Book Assure, who, is, who I love, and she was kind of saying the same things to me. So anyway, um, the other thing I wanted to mention is TC was asking me about uh, what am I attached to this or that. And after publishing four books with editors, I'm not attached to anything anymore. <laughs> 
that. One of the things I really realized is that I love to, I, love, I had a great experience with Ruth as my editor, and I just love working with her because, you know, it really helps you kind of unlock kind of the book that you're really trying to write. And as a consequence of that, I'm not uh, attached to anything. So many things change. My Vatican series changed greatly and, and, and for the better with Ruth. So I'm perfectly willing to listen to advice. The other thing is I'm a family doctor. And um, so when I take care of my patients, I often involve specialists in their care. And oftentimes they have a kind of a different vision for my patient than I do. So I'm kind of used to being kind of helped along the way in my path. I would have no problem about change. I, I see what you mean. I really like an understated tone when I write, but Ruth is always trying to get me to be less understated. And I think just in the opening, right, it's just we have to have so much clarity in our opening scene. And so there's so many other ways to be relaxed in that sense or, or be a bit more literary. But I think with our opening scene, we're just establishing so much. And yeah, I just feel like we need a little bit there. But there's so many other ways where you're so subtle and it comes off. I mean, I'll read a, I'll read a section that I liked. It says, in contrast to the rest of the room, it was neat and orderly. Her thin futon was folded in one corner. The American Girl doll she bought at the Goodwill store with money she'd stolen from her mother's cash box rested on top. A milk crate with her school supplies was next to the futon. And next to that were two more milk crates with her clothes and personal belongings. The clothes were folded crisply and what few personal belongings she had were labeled with a black Sharpie and stacked in order, smallest to biggest from front to back, right? And it says so much through that scene of the contrast, right? And so you didn't say everything you needed to say flat out, but you gave us such context. And I think that was that was really wonderful. So I know through that, that you can kind of balance that. And, and I think that's what writing books that take off need, right? You need that balance. When do I let the reader take charge? And when do I, the author, have to kind of hold the hand? And when you want to evoke emotion versus when you want the reader to fly through the pages, right? And so I think it's all that you're always exploring that balance when you're writing fiction in that way where it can connect with a lot of people. And that's great. So I think you did a really strong job. I mean, my main notes were just, again, trying to figure out that balance there about that calmness under pressure and where that comes from, whether it's calmness or whether it's that trauma response. I think balancing that. Because even when she breaks into the pawn shop to get the gun, such a calmness, right? It wasn't like, "Mm, I wonder if there's an alarm or the cops are going to show up, right? Like she clearly was watching and she knew, oh, they don't have an alarm system. She's so observant, right? And I think she's a really rich and interesting character and clearly has a really interesting plot ahead of her. So yeah, overall, I think you did. I think you did a really good job. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add to that? I very much agree with the assessment. And I think that's interesting because Peter told us she's she's dissociating a little bit. She's not experiencing those emotions because, you know, it's a form of protection. And that makes that makes total sense. Psychologically speaking, I think you've really nailed her. I wonder, because we are starting the novel and because tension is non-negotiable to keep people reading, I wonder if it makes sense to have her be alone. I do love her that she's observant. I love her interiority. I just, you know, given that she is detached and given that emotion is, is what we need to connect to character, I wonder if there shouldn't be an imbalance with another person present provoking her a little bit. Because that way, while she would still, you know, disassociate and be detached, there might be emotions that would bubble up with the provocation. I don't know. I obviously haven't read the whole thing to be able to offer substantial advice. I just, it made me wonder if this was the right place to start. I also love the first line. I would isolate it. Okay. Do you have other questions or, or comments, Peter? So are you guys okay with the fact that I started with third person, a limited point of view, and then go immediately over to the next chapter is Jade after she's practicing as a physician now. And it's first person point of view at that point in time. Is that all right? Or should I make this first person Would that help? I, I think it's fine the way that it is because it kind of will come off like a prologue in a good way because, you know, if, if she's jumping in age and everything like that, this will kind of be set apart, right? It's, right. It's, it ends up being a prologue, which I kind of imagine, right? We have to right. jump a bunch 
time. So I don't see a problem with that. But Bianca, you're the craft queen. What do you think? There's no hard and fast rule with it. If you do it well, you can absolutely get away with it. That's the thing. If you're going to break the rules, just do it really, really well. I mean, your reason for doing it is, talk us through your reason for that again. Just because we're going to start again with Jade in the next paragraph when she's much older. So I wanted to just kind of highlight the separation in time by changing the narrator's point of view. Yeah, yeah, because if you'd written her then, you would have to use a much younger voice, which I suppose would then be disjointed for later. Could that then be a prologue, Carly and Cece? Because I think if you have a prologue in third person and then chapter one in first person, that feels less of a disconnect. Yeah, that's what I, I, I was. I was going to make it a prologue, but I was always under the assumption of agentated prologue. No, we read between the lines. It, a prologue. it all depends. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always read between the lines. Like, you don't even have to call it prologue. You could just start with it and then call the next section chapter one. You know what I mean? Like, you don't right. have to out yourself as a prologuer. But what I think we're getting at here is the fact that this is third person really solidifies it as an adult novel, right? Because if you were to go into first person in a 14 year old's voice, right. like, that's kind of a different thing, especially if you're going to jump to the adult voice so i would keep it third person here and then move to first person in adult voice you don't have to call it a prologue just kind of doesn't need a header and then just but call the next section chapter one okay i like that a lot yeah and again you know i know we we diss on prologues a lot yeah but it's just when the prologue is not doing heavy lifting and it's not really adding value and we've recommended prologues and there's times that a prologue really adds something huge and because this is so far in the past and is kind of like her backstory origin story, I have no problem with that being a prologue at all. Yeah, I definitely agree. I I don't like prologues when we feel manipulated. That's what I don't like a prologue. And you're not manipulating us. This is an origin story. So those are two different things. What about the length of the the book, 70,000 words? I mean, I think we can talk for hours about attention spans of the modern reader and how many other distractible things people have to do in their free time. And if you can write a lot of plot into 70,000 words, that's a page turner, right? With this tells me this is a page turner 70,000 words and you got a lot going on and that is a good thing I have one more question for you it goes back to the query letter in one version of my query letter I kind of wrote a couple sentences about why I'm looking for an agent now because I already have a publisher you think that need, you think I need to say that or do you think I should just not say it do you mean at the top of the section where the you're top, saying yeah. you never have to make an excuse to agents about why you want an agent because like, we we know the value we bring so I don't right. I didn't see any red flags or hiccups or anything there okay Wonderful. Okay, so was there anything else anyone wanted to add to that? Peter, you have any more questions? I don't, but I really appreciate the time, ladies. Peter, if you feel like this draft is ready to go and shareable, I'd love to take a look. And we also have Curtis Russell at the agency that specializes in a lot of crime and thrillers. So we'd be happy to take a look over at P.S. Literary. So, you know, um, I really appreciate you saying that. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rewrite this first chapter. (laughs) And then I'm going to send it to you. Yeah, the rewriting never ends. Never ends. And you know that, Peter, because you've worked with with editors, so you know. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things I've learned about writing. And that is, like, someone said, you know, you, you don't write a good novel, you rewrite one. And I've actually started to enjoy rewriting things, especially when you're getting good guidance and and, and someone's helping you in the process. Yeah, absolutely. That is where the magic happens. So thanks for joining us, Peter. Thank you, Carly and Cece. Let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. 
Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Before we go to today's guest, this is just a reminder that we've got the virtual retreat coming up and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services and retreats tab and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that, Again, look at the website, biancamaray.com, and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter. Today's guest is a journalist and one of the founding editors of Bustle, where she served as senior features editor for three years. Her work has been featured on Vox, The Guardian, NPR, and many other outlets. 
She's the recipient of the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, the Investigative Reporters and Editors Radio Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and the Peabody Award for her work as an investigative reporter with YR Media. It's my pleasure to welcome Rachel Krantz. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm such a fan of the show, as you know, so this is an interview I've been looking forward to. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that. And it's an interview I've been looking forward to because your book just blew me away. So for our listeners, the book that we're discussing today is called Open, an Uncensored Memoir of Love, Liberation and Non-Monogamy. And, you know, just as a bit of an understanding, it's exploration of non-monogamy, chronicling Rachel's first open relationship. And I just want to read at the front of the advanced reader copy, her editor has written a letter, which happens quite regularly. You know, editors write these things to explain why they love the book and why they hope you will love the book. And a part that the editor wrote was, what I find so astonishing about this book is the sheer honesty, its total lack of agenda. This is the first warts and all portrait of non-monogamy. Most writers would shy away from this level of vulnerability, but Rachel Krantz is an open-minded, open-hearted writer. Novelistic and astutely observed, open reads like a page-turner, but at the same time, Rachel interviews scientists, psychologists, and real people who are living and loving outside the mainstream, and their stories are also shared in these pages. And then there's also a letter from Rachel to the reader, and it starts with Dearly Beloved Reader, the story is true. From 2015 to 2019, I obsessively documented my first open and dom sub-relationships. I'm talking not just journal entries, but hours and hours, days and days of audio recordings. Nothing was off limits, dates, arguments, role-playing, trips to swingers resorts, moments I was being gaslit, and every single therapy session. And that was just mind-blowing <laughs> to me, Rachel. So could you take us through this process? I mean, this is called a reported memoir. So let's first differentiate what that means compared to a regular memoir. Sure, yeah. So a reported memoir is, you know, pretty much what it sounds like. It's a memoir, which is traditionally just narrative, first-person, true story of your life, but you're adding reporting to it. So you're bringing in research, outside context, interviews, all the things you would do when you're, you know, writing an article or a long investigative feature that you might see more usually in, in sort of traditional nonfiction books that might not be as narrative. So it's sort of a hybrid between those forms that I think is becoming more and more popular, but also is still relatively unusual. Very much so, because I haven't read anything like this. And can I ask why, when you started writing this, did you decide that that was the structure you were wanting to go with? Why not regular memoir? Well, I'm a investigative reporter and I guess just journalist by training. And so I also have always been interested in writing from a first person point of view, kind of in the tradition of, of Joan Didion of, you know, I'm not really interested in taking myself outside of the story because something about that feels less interesting and just disingenuous. But I've also been always really interested in immersion journalism. And 
I think as I was living this story, I wasn't sure I would ever write a book about it. The recording was much more coping mechanism to try to digest the increasingly mind-blowing and mind-fucking <laughs> experience I was going through. And as I was in this relationship that was characterized by more and more gaslighting and slowly, as the book shows, kind of losing all trust in my own judgment and even reality my reporter's instincts kicked in to be like, wait, this has never happened to me before. I know I'm a strong, smart woman. I think I'm in the midst of something that might be useful to people one day. I have no idea how to get out of this situation, but I'm just going to have a record of it. And so I think, you know, it became this light at the end of the tunnel, the idea that I would have this hybrid that felt very natural to me of telling my story, but also making sense of it. Yeah. And that's so interesting. I'm so glad you said that because there was a part of me that when I was reading it, I was, you know, when we approach things, we see ourselves in that scenario. And I say, I could never be authentically myself if I was taping these things, etc. because then I, it would feel performative to me. But when I got to the parts about the gaslighting, I was like, aha, that clicked into place for me because so often when you're gaslit by somebody, they twist your words, they twist their own words, they twist your recollection of their words. And it's like, did I say that? Or did you misinterpret it, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And in instances where I've been gaslit, I've said to myself, I wish that we had this in writing, or I wish I'd recorded it. So that was the moment when I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. But now in terms of for our listeners, if they are wanting to do something similar, how do you go about this? Because you had conversations with big groups of people where these conversations were recorded and you quoted them verbatim. How do you set that up? What are the legalities around that? Yeah, so some of the conversations in the book are reconstructed based on later interviews. So for example, like the trip to the Swingers Resort, when we were having that conversation, I wasn't recording it, but I stayed friends with these people. They knew I was at the resort reporting a story on monogamy, so they, they knew that and that there was potential they would be featured in that or maybe even a book one day if I wrote one, but that their identity would be protected. And so later when I did decide to write the book, you know, they and everyone else who features in the book signed a release saying I could use interview material, you know, including Adam throughout the time we were in that relationship, which was very generous of him. His identities changed, of course, but, you know, it's, it's kind of a mix in the book. And I try to usually differentiate that between the first year of the book is not based on recorded stuff that's based on journal entries, email records, text messages, you know, so much of our lives is recorded already as it is. But once kind of the second half of the book happens, and I really start using this idea of a future book as a coping mechanism, and Adam gets on board that I would record things and other lovers get on board and I start interviewing certain experts, then they all signed releases and were informed ahead of time. And the deal was sort of just you know, that I would protect their identity. And for people who didn't want their identity protected, I offered that they could basically review their pages beforehand and approve or veto any quotes. Yeah, the sheer amount of data that you had must have been daunting yeah. because for our listeners, besides all the interviews Rachel did, etc., she reads a ton of books. She quotes from a ton of books from experts on the things that she was experiencing. 
And it's just a lot. And just somebody who writes fiction, I know that when I do research, it could be a kind of black hole that you disappear down and you're kind of chasing your tail and you eventually have to step back and go, oh shit, you know, I've got enough information here. Let me move on. How do you take that amount of data and crystallize it when it's something about your life and your experience, but at the same time, you're clearly trying to educate people on a lifestyle that they themselves will not know that much about? Yeah. I mean, very carefully, gruelingly over many years, I have worked so long on this, not just living it and, and begin on some ways, reporting and living the story as it was happening, but then in the years after as well. I think also just interviewing so many people afterwards, you know, once I sort of knew that I was writing the book, that I had the book deal, that I sort of knew more or less where the story was going to get cut off and end. Those interviews really helped me shape the story and make sense of it, right? Because I started writing it when I was sort of just emerging from the wreckage of one of the most dramatic periods of my of my life and really having lost myself in a lot of ways. And so the process of writing the book itself was one of coming back to a confidence in my own ability to discern and to make sense of situations and to hopefully help others and feel like it wasn't all for nothing. So I think interviewing all those psychologists, it felt very natural to me as a reporter, but it was also part of my own healing because it was like, all right, I have these records. I can't go through all of them. You know, I recorded every couple's therapy session. I ended up using none of that because it was still too fresh and painful, but I had been smart enough to mark at least out of all these dozens and dozens of recordings, like I had marked some as this one was really important or this one was very indicative. And so I kind of picked what I would expose myself to. And it it was tough. It was a it was tough stuff to revisit. But yeah, I think that having all those other people was also very affirming and, and helpful in making sense of the story. Something that I was fascinated by as well is your level of objectivity that you brought to so much of it. Because let's be honest, memoir is not objective. It is completely about our personal experience, about what we're going through. And so much of it is reliant on memory and our perception of things. And yet, you know, there was so much objectivity brought to it. And do you think that's your journalistic side? That even as you were sort of experiencing something, you could step out of it and see it in a more objective way? Yeah, I mean, I I think it totally is still subjective, but I appreciate you're saying that there is a commitment to trying to get as close to the truth or letting people speak in their own voices wherever possible that I was very dedicated to. I think that also part of what the book is a commentary on is, you know, Me Too is happening during it. And here I am, like you said, falling deeper and deeper into this relationship where there's so much gaslighting and where someone's telling me all the time, you're remembering things wrong. What evidence do you have? You know, why, why are you misinterpreting reality? And so I think I had absorbed the message, you know, seeing Kavanaugh being confirmed and, and people saying it's not enough that the therapists have records of these women talking about their sexual assault, you know, like that even that didn't count. I was like, okay, I'm just going to gather evidence. It was almost this survival instinct of, I, I know I won't be viewed as credible or like as a woman writing about 
these kinds of experiences that I will already be viewed with so much suspicion that I better have as much evidence as possible. And I think that's part of what's really cool and interesting about it. And, and also, you know, sad in the commentary that I felt like I had to do that. And it's been interesting as the book comes out, seeing people react to it. Most of it's been very positive, but I think one of the only real critiques I've heard so far, which I knew was coming because many women like Melissa Phoebos and Olivia Sujic have written about this, how as a woman, another way you're discredited is if you do things like write about your life or keep that record that provides evidence, then people say she was just doing it for the material. She was just inauthentic doing it for attention. So really it's set up so that either way, we're in a bind, right? Like either you're remembering it wrong and you're an unreliable witness of your own life or you're, you know, doing it for attention and material and had this ulterior motive the whole time. And and I knew that as was happening. So my way to address it is to try to show myself grappling with that within the narrative itself. Yeah. I mean, as women, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But there was also an awareness of your privilege as a white woman. You know, you often reference the experience of transgender women, you know, people of color, etc., and how much easier it is for you as a white woman to go through these things. So, I mean, you're quite a bit younger than I am. And so when I was reading that, I was going, is this just this whole generation is just so woke and they just are aware of these things all yeah. the time? Or is it has it been trial and error? Because I know, Rachel, you've lived your life very much out loud. You know, so many of us, we so private and we're so scared of revealing these darker parts of ourselves or anything that we view as unsympathetic, etc. Whereas you... In your journalism, you just are who you bloody well are. And uh, people, it's like, take it or leave it. And that's something that I admire and respect enormously. Was it a learning curve for you as you were putting your life out there to get to that point of that kind of awareness? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that was one of the biggest mistakes I made at Bustle was not having enough awareness or education about those things or thinking, oh, I can just like kind of acknowledge my privilege and move on, you know, but not really do the work of providing context or potential action items or really educating the reader in any way that's sort of more superficial level. And so, yeah, that was really important to me in this book. I had a lot of different methods for that. The most important is a person named Aisha, who's in the book, was instrumental. And they're my friend. And they reviewed the whole book. I hired them to work with me on it as sort of a sensitivity reader. Then the publisher, I got them to hire them again. And then I had many other early readers, all from different backgrounds and orientations, as much as I could have to provide their two cents. Another person who was important was someone I wish I had time to use for the whole book that I recommend to listeners named the radical copy editor, Alex Capitan. And they were just really excellent in reviewing some of the most sensitive passages and tricky things of my not being sure how to phrase it to be the most inclusive. But of course, these things are always changing. So you just know you do the best you can. And yeah, I just wanted to check myself throughout as much as I could. Yeah, excellent point. You know, I've written about race a lot. And in a recent project, I wrote a transgender character. And so sensitivity readers are so, so important because even when you have the best of intentions, you're going to get things wrong. And, you know, the smart, empathetic writer is always going to be making sure that they're on the right path. So for our listeners, that's something I definitely recommend. 
Something I want to ask you as well, before I ask your advice for our memoirist listeners, and we have a lot of listeners who write memoir, is so many people who write memoir, their biggest issue is they don't want to write it under their own name because they have a problem with friends and family reading, you know, whatever it is that they've been through and kind of putting it out there. Was this something that was difficult for you as well, or was it less difficult because of your past experience at Bustle? And something that I read and I was amazed by is your relationship with your mother. I could never write a memoir. I don't even write personal essays. <laughs> I think my mother would, that would be it for us. I would be, you know, cut off. And yet, you know, you had these very open discussions with your mother. She had no problem with you discussing even parts about her life and your relationship with her besides your own life. So what's the secret there? <laughs> well, she's amazing. I mean, I, I'm lucky that I have a family that's very supportive and open-minded and, you know, very much makes sense how I came out of them, I think. Just kind of liberal Jews from New York who moved to the Bay Area in the 70s and all the things that go along with that. And so I grew up in a very open-minded environment where talking about these things was not taboo. If anything, I think I have the opposite problem of like, sometimes I want to have more boundaries and say to them, please don't read this, but they want to read it anyway. You know, I think it never really occurred to me not to do it under my name or to fictionalize it. I think, yes, because of my experiences already, you know, I've built this name for myself. I am proud of some of the things I've done for sure. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of it was just churning out content. And I was pressured to write personal essays in half a day, you know, and that lives on the internet forever. And so I was interested in like, what would happen if I actually had years to think about what I say before I said it instead of hours and was interested in trying to, yeah, learn from some of the mistakes I made and have something better on the record. Yeah. And for our listeners, you know, when you have a novel come out or a memoir, whatever, your publicist at your publishing company encourages you to write personal essays that they can then place wherever because this gives you publicity and it, you know, gets people wanting to read books. I mean, in our upcoming event that we're having at the end of the month with Britt Bennett, you know, keep in mind how Britt Bennett sort of was catapulted into fame with a personal essay she wrote about how she doesn't know what to do with well-intentioned white people. And you know, you are wanting to sell this book. And so you are encouraged to write these kinds of things. But as Rachel says, many authors end up writing things and then afterwards really regretting what they put out there. So certainly something to always keep in the back of your mind. What are you prepared to share? What are the consequences of that? What are the repercussions of that? And it never goes away. And somebody like Rachel is kind of grown up with all of this out there. And that must take a huge toll because your mistakes are never erased. They're very public mistakes. Yep. Anyone could Google it and suddenly, you know, this thing comes up. So something yep. to keep in mind <laughs> as well. So Rachel, for our listeners who are writing in memoir, do you have any specific pieces of advice that you can share with them, either in terms of the process or in terms of research or in terms of structuring the book, you know, on Books with Hooks, who always think to people who write memoir, to view themselves as a character in a novel because you want it to be structured in this way that there's this inciting incident and there's a key event and you want all the kind of action beats that you have in a novel, but it's so personal. And I take my head off to anyone who writes a memoir because I think it's extremely tough. So what advice do you have? Sure. Well, I have quite a lot, but I, I, I'll try to narrow it down to just five things. 
The first is to have a therapist and a mindfulness practice because writing a book is draining enough, as we know, but memoir is particularly psychologically taxing, I think, because you're just often mining the most traumatizing memories of your life. You're living in your own past. You are just really putting yourself back there and back there and back there. And also to write a good book, you need to be, I think, incredibly vulnerable and also self-aware. And so anything you can do to develop that with um, having some sort of counselor you talk to and also some sort of meditation practice so that you're really skillful at being able to observe your own mind and your own story as you craft it in real time is important. A second thing I would say is, you know, be your own stalker slash reporter. Like I was saying, there's so much about our lives that is on the record already that if you don't know where to start, you can create a document that's sort of a linear timeline conglomerate of important emails and events and text messages and sort of lay it out in order or have this sort of master doc of the primary source material. And that'll also give you an idea of eventually how you might create a sort of timeline and then pick a, which is another one of my tips, pick one of these templates that you've talked about, like your 12-point story guide is excellent that you have a class on, or The Heroine's Journey was a really useful book to me to sort of impose my important events. I found, oh, when I laid it out with The Heroine's Journey, it actually pretty much matched up. And then I was able to move around some of the pieces that might be more flexible, like, for example, conversations with important mentors or or people like that that happened over a period of many years and were maybe reconstructed in later interviews, I could put them in the meeting, the mentor space, right? And so there's certain things that you can still be factual, but recreate to a degree through doing interviews later. So like if you have people who would be willing to have a conversation with you about what was happening at that time and you want to get their voice right, ask them if they would consent to doing a recorded interview with you and and talk about it again. And then you can get it transcribed and, and you have the beginning of your scene and you have more authentic dialogue right away that you don't even have to create from scratch. So you can be factual and also sort of this reporter's mindset to kind of go and dig back and see what was actually happening, not just my memory of it, but how can I get verification or outside sources? And then related to that would be to find your community. Like you're always saying, it's incredibly important. My writer friends who I've been lucky to find through a debut author group that was started by an author named Liv Stratman have become my lifeboats through this whole thing and just so important. And, you know, listening to this podcast has given me a sense of community. So thank you for that. And yeah, I would just really encourage people to try to find a group, try to find their other writer friends who will read the early drafts, who will respond to your messages when you're freaking out about what you're about to reveal to the world. You know, all of that, you're going to really need that support, potentially, especially with memoir. And then my last tip would be to read widely and adjacently. You know, I think that sometimes throughout the process, I was feeling almost 
overwhelmed when people would tell me like, oh, there's this memoir that's kind of a a similar topic as you and you should read it. And I'd be like, I kind of don't want to read anything that that's similar. Like it felt like work. And while I was reading a lot of, and, and I would suggest people do a lot of nonfiction and more research stuff that was background that ended up in the book that was important context. I also mostly read novels because that's what I love to read. And I think that some of the books that most informed it, even if they don't show up in the footnotes as much or as citations of research, were actually novels like, um, you know, My Dark Vanessa showed me about, okay, that was a sort of in some ways similar dynamic. How do you have this sort of tension, sexy, dark love story? How might you pace something like that? So I think ideally memoirists read a lot of fiction and learn a lot about how to make the pages turn from that as well. All excellent advice. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to giving yourself permission. And I think this is something that many of our listeners struggle with, especially when it comes to memoir is, you know, for you, was it a case of sitting down and saying to yourself, Rachel, this is something you went through. This is something you personally experienced and you have the damn right to, you know, write about it, even if it perhaps doesn't make other people look so good. Was there ever a point at which you had to grapple with that? Oh, throughout the whole time. (laughs) Still, right now, to be honest, I'm terrified, but I'm also very excited. It is a really quite vulnerable thing. I felt like for me, it was what I had to do to be able to make sense of what had happened and where I was going next and to feel like what I guess I need to do, what I could be most helpful doing. I seem to have less fear than your average person of making myself incredibly vulnerable. And that doesn't mean I'm not scared, but I just feel like, okay, if that's my main skill (laughs) besides writing, then I want to use that because I don't feel like the level of shame around these things, not just about sex and and non-monogamy, but so many of the topics the book deals with, you know, emotional abuse, power dynamics and relationships, expectations around gender, not knowing, you know, if you've arrived at your life, if you don't get married and have children, like all these things, I think are still unnecessarily taboo for women, especially to admit to. And so yeah, I just, I felt like that sort of imaginary reader who might be helped by that really helped me keep going even when I very much had other people's voices in my head saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing this or you're doing this the wrong way or potential critics in my head. I just sort of imagined, well, there's so many books that have helped me in that way of being like, thank God she just admitted that. Like, I'm not the only person who has that thought or that feeling that you're not supposed to say out loud. Those books have been the ones that have been the most important to me. So that's what I was interested in paying forward. Yeah, and you and I had a discussion on social media. I posted about a book club that I did with the Jewish Women's Group. And you wrote, you wonder how these Jewish book clubs are going to respond to your novel because you said in many ways you feel like it is a Jewish book. Like, what is your thought as the book comes out into the world and it's going to be picked up by these kinds of book clubs? And before you answer that, I, when you asked that question, I just thought to myself, it's amazing that you've written this book and that this book is going to be out there for them to pick up because these are not things we talk about. These are not things that we have discussions about and there's so much shame around it. And in talking openly about it, it takes away the shame. And I think it's 
I'm hoping these Jewish women are going to be picking up these books and having you there to discuss it with you. What what are you thinking about that? Me too. If any of them are listening, I'd love to join in your book club or any book club, you know. Yeah, it was important to me. It was funny as I was writing that so much Yiddish would just come out naturally. My parents always, you know, spoke some Yiddish and and I knew I knew some, but I was like, oh yeah, no, this is really coming out. And I was like, okay, I'm going to teach people some Yiddish in this book and that's cool. And it's going to be proudly Jewish and, and, you know, just also quite scandalous and whatever, that's reality, you know, <laughs> like, and that's just the case for a lot of things like being non-monogamous, being vegan. There's a lot of things in the book that I think are sort of semi or marginalized groups that people have a lot of stereotypes around and they might read certain things and be like, oh yeah, that confirms my stereotype. Or they might be like, oh, this is a complication of it. And I just know it'll be read both ways, but I feel like the way any less mainstream group or more stereotype group gains more acceptance is partially that they have very flawed depictions of themselves in media because that's relatable. Like if if you have to be perfect, that's its own restrictive box. So I'm just trying to be honest. Yeah. For our listeners, this book really made me think I was underlining parts. I was, I never read footnotes. I'm like, for God's sake, if it's that important, it'll be in the damn book. I was reading the footnotes and I was making a note to read the books that Rachel referenced in the footnotes. So it really, besides it being a page turner, and there were parts of it that were quite scandalous and scintillating. And then there were parts that just like hit me, you know, with the emotion, like sucker punch moments that were just so real and so raw and so relatable. So we will be linking the book on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Remember, if you buy the book through there, you will be supporting the podcast. We get a small percentage of it. You'll be supporting Rachel and you'll be supporting an independent bookstore as well. So Rachel, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. I hope our listeners are going to read the book and we'd love to hear on social media what they think about it. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. And thank you for all your work building this community. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember. It just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. 
Don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is 
different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.